0: My guest today is Ethan Soupley. This man has an incredible story of facing his fears. And I looked up and I saw this actor I had seen many times and actually loved, who'd been in American History X, My Name Is Earl, Wolf of Wall Street. And he's the big guy taking up most of the screen with the best lines. So you look at that and you think, wow, look at the man today. So I then go onto Ethan's Instagram and I see this man who's publicly talking about his journey around food, drugs and alcohol, and it's an amazing journey. So I'm really excited today to talk to him about that journey, about his rock bottom. Ethan got to 500 pounds in his rock bottom and drugs and alcohol on a crazy level. It was not an easy journey getting to a place of where he is today. And I want to understand what took him on that journey, what motivated him to stay on that journey, and how he has worked through his fears around his self-image and his body dysmorphia. And self-image and body dysmorphia is something we all have, whatever our size. So, let's meet Ethan. I'm going to start off with something that I've read. Okay. This is on your Instagram. All right. As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a monstrous bug. What has happened to me, he thought. It was no dream. Franz Kafka. Now the rest is written by Ethan. Oblivious isn't exactly the right word because I could feel self-awareness coming on like an emotional swell that I could stuff down into some dark, cold, vacant part of my mind. Willful ignorance is more accurate. When friends express concern, I'd feel the blood rushing to my cheeks, the tremble in my hands, and I would take that creeping self-awareness and put it in a shoebox lock it in an uncrackable safe which happened to be in a locked closet in a derelict house which was situated in the worst and least visited neighbourhood of my mind. Hide away the bad thoughts, stuff them into the cracks of the couch with the crumbs, I'll get to them later. The house was on fire, but such a large house and if I couldn't feel the warmth from my bedroom, did it matter? And then I would wake up a monstrous bug with no ability to disguise myself from myself. I would wake up with every bit of hidden knowledge crashed down upon me like the Hindenburg. On these mornings of revelation, I would need to solve every problem instantaneously. I would search for the easiest solution or the most radical. I facilitated between belief that either one small change or total upheaval were the answer. This led to years of failure and frustration. Changing one thing never led to a miraculous recovery and changing everything all at once didn't either. It took many years for me to understand that in order to become a different person, many instances of small changes were required, but that I wouldn't understand them all on day one. The getting good at a single change might then require another change to bolster improvement. Self-improvement has no end, and if I'm not working towards this in some way, I am in deterioration. I prefer getting better. This is an extract from American Glutton Podcast, which is your blog, Ethan. And I have to say, you're an unbelievable writer. Oh, thank you, Trini. Like, I read this and I thought, first of all, I thought, was that Kafka? And I thought, no, it's more modern, but it was so good. I thank you. I appreciate
1: that. You know, I think for social media, I get feel very much like a lot of it is harmful and bad, and I don't want to contribute to that. And so, I don't know. I appreciate your accolades. It's very hard for me to take them and try to (laughs) say anything more than thank you, but I I try to contribute positively.
0: Do you find it easier to write than to speak? Yes. Yeah. Quite a bit easier. I felt that.
1: I think that a lot of uh, the trouble I experience even today, but much more strongly in my adolescence, was due to fear. And I still have that fear. And like, what is there really to be scared of you? You, I don't think you're going to try to harm me. And Mm -hmm. you seem like a very nice woman. And so like, why would I be afraid of you? I don't think I am actually afraid of you, but I'm nervous and I don't want to be laughed at. And Mm -hmm. if I'm being laughed at, I want to be somehow in control of that laughter. So I want to be intentionally silly Yeah, so when I'm writing by myself, I can silence all of that and just Mm -hmm. get something down that makes coherent sense to me Mm -hmm. and then put that out.
0: I'm going to go back. I'm going to ask you things that I don't want you to take in any way in offense. I'm just going to set the scene. So when I look at your career and I look at those great films that you have been in, when people were casting you, what do you think they were saying?
1: There was a period of time where I definitely cornered the market for, like, big guys, but Mm -hmm. then there was, like, beyond big. And if you wanted that, you wanted me. While that's true, I definitely tried to steer away from, as much as possible, movies where fatness was the butt of the joke.
0: I just want to ask you, in all the films you've done, because you've done really great films... Were there many where people asked you to be in the movie that you said, I'm not going to be in that scenario?
1: No, most of the movies that I did, it was a part of the part, but it wasn't a ridiculed part of the part. There was one instance I was doing a movie with a very good friend of mine named Kevin Connolly who went on to do a television show called Entourage, Mm -hmm. and Coolio was in it, and Coolio came in to rehearse with us And he said, I'm going to be making a lot of jokes. And then he started saying like fat ass and this. And and I said, no, no, you're not going to do that. You're absolutely not going to do that. We're not going there Mm -hmm. with this. I think part of being an actor for me was creating a shield that separated my obesity from who I was, who I felt that I was innately from how I was perceived by others. So. If I was getting looked at, I was getting looked at because maybe they saw me in a movie or a television show, which kind of was a distraction Mm -hmm. from what I was accustomed to being looked at, which was because I was the odd man out at my size. And so I felt that if I did a part where obesity was the focal point and it was being made fun of, that would just put a microscope on this thing that was so terrifically uncomfortable for me.
0: When you were very young, because I read researching that at five you went on a diet, I want to ask you a relationship with your parents that it got to a stage where a five-year-old needed to go on a diet, all right? And just when you look back at that, how does that define your relationship with your parents? I mean, they're two separate questions, but I think you know sure. where I'm coming from.
1: Yeah. I remember vividly the day I was first placed on a diet. and. It was actually done by my grandparents. It was over the summer I went to Vermont to visit them and they placed me on a diet. But I kind of got the idea that they had my parents' permission to do this or Mm -hmm. there had been some discussion. Chat. Yeah. That moment, I went from having no sense of self at all to being unbelievably hyper aware that there even was a body there. You know, there was this idea of me in a kind of abstract sense, mm-hmm. and then it got very intensely focused in a literal sense mm-hmm. on me as, as this body that was shameful and bad and wrong. So the first
0: time you experienced shame?
1: Well, it was the first time I experienced a sense of self, even, mm-hmm. which was coupled with shame, and I'm sure that, like, screwed me up terrifically moving forward. You know, it becomes very difficult for me because I'm a parent. I have Mm -hmm. four daughters and I now have a granddaughter. Mm -hmm. And I had made all these, I felt, noble decisions about how I wasn't going to mess my kids up, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, I was determined to not mess my kids up. And one of the things was like alcohol and drugs were super taboo in my household. And then I became a drug addict. And there was a little part of me that thought, I'm doing this as a rebellion. And I was put on a diet at five and then I became morbidly obese and I was sneaking food. And I thought if they hadn't restricted my food, maybe it wouldn't have gotten so out of hand. And so I had all these thoughts about not putting those kinds of restrictions on my kids. Mm -hmm. And the problem came when my she's now 18 year old daughter was four she got diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes, juvenile Mm -hmm. diabetes. And suddenly, I was presented with this thing of like, well, this idea that you're not going to restrict your kid's food...
0: Had to go out the window.
1: You have to literally count her carbohydrates and give her a dose of insulin Mm -hmm. for just about everything she eats. And you have to talk to her in a way where she starts to understand this because sooner than later, she's going to be responsible for doing Mm -hmm. and And so... I got a better point of view of what my parents were attempting. Whether they were right or wrong or did it correctly or incorrectly, I think it becomes very tricky for parents to not screw their kids up. I know plenty of very well-adjusted people, but I still think it's hard to just be the
0: perfect parent. Okay, I'm going to throw this out there. Because if you see your five-year-old taking a line of cocaine, all right, you'll take it away. All right, food, you can't remove. That's the thing. That's the hardest thing about getting into recovery from food versus drugs or alcohol. You can't be abstinent. So I want to ask, if your parents saw that you were getting fat, I think it was fat, (laughs) it's tough because we've always had judgment. So you go into a restaurant and you see, you know, some parents with a kid who's really overweight. People can be judging because they think, can't the parents control that situation so that the kid is not clinically overweight?
1: Yeah. The really tricky thing for me is when I try to see the rightness in my parents' actions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my grandparents' actions, mm-hmm. I then go back and look at pictures of myself at five, and I, I don't see a fat kid. Oh, God. By by any standards, yeah. by today's standards, certainly not yeah. a fat kid. But even by back then, I go like, that's the kid that you, you said on a diet. Yeah. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. With a five-year-old kid, I think in a vacuum, right? Because there's a lot of other variables to consider, I just go like, How much lean chicken? is a 5-year-old going to overeat? How much broccoli is mm-hmm. a 5-year-old going to overeat? How mm-hmm. much plain rice without yeah. tons of, you know, sweet teriyaki sauce mm-hmm. is a 5-year-old going to overeat? So, my attempt was always like let's present the kids with good options mm-hmm. that would be hard to become abused and see where they go from there themselves. And even there, then you get into situations where they go to a friend's house and are like, what's this stuff that they eat for breakfast called cereal that's Mm. covered in sugar and delicious? Why Mm. don't we have that, Mm -hmm. you
0: know? Exactly what you say, Azan. How much do we, from our inherited stuff, how much do we decide what does control look like when you bring up a kid? Because you and I probably know a lot of kids who've had So much control, and we see so many problems when they become teenagers as a result of that Yeah, that balance. Yeah, I
1: do think that there is a rebellion. Well, for me, there was the intentional swing in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Drugs and alcohol are a taboo. Okay, the minute I can procure drugs and alcohol, I am going to get my hands on as much as I can and go nuts with it. Mm -hmm. And the same with food. Like, I was overweight my whole life, but the minute I became autonomous my weight ballooned, Mm -hmm. it got crazy. Mm -hmm. So I think there is addiction within me, regardless of what my parents did, and I don't want to be hypercritical of them because I think that they did what they thought was the the right thing.
0: thing Yeah. Yeah. When you look at addiction, and I'm going to put food in that category too, do you agree with that in terms of being in recovery from... Like when I look back at my addiction, I look back at in all the years that I was using, did I have happy times? You know, it's quite challenging to look back and think, which are the happy times? Because at the time, we kind of were fueled by something and we wanted to amplify it. So we already thought we were happy we're making ourselves happier. But then obviously, we get to the point where instead of going from zero to 10, we're at minus 10 trying to get back up to zero. So how many years do you think you were, you know, at that minus 10 going back to zero? And I want to ask you in those times as well, when you felt happy, what brought you happiness then compared to now?
1: Happiness then, I think of laying on a couch and eating to the point of euphoria. And that that is like beyond the capacity for which your body says we're full. It's mm-hmm. like you've blown past that register and Mm. you're eating to absolute, as much as you can stretch out your stomach. Mm -hmm.
0: Is it like a high?
1: It is. There is a high there because even when I was using drugs, I continued to overeat. At the end of the night, I would go home and overeat and and that would destroy the other high or blunt it at the least. And so I continued to do that. There aren't a lot of morbidly obese junkies, because food becomes kind of secondary. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I continued to eat because that was my first true love, that kind of filling myself up, feeling comfort and safety from
0: that. What was your rock-bottom moment?
1: I was told I was going to die by a doctor. I had congestive heart failure. My feet would swell up, and then my legs would swell up, And I would stop using drugs and be very sick for a few days or a week. And then the swelling would go away. And then I'd start using drugs again. And I'd get a couple weeks of drug use. And then the swelling would come back. And then I kept doing that. And finally, the swelling wasn't going away. And I finally went to see a doctor. And she told me I had congestive heart failure. And the swelling had gotten up to my groin at this point. And she said... When that swelling gets to your chest, you die. It puts too much pressure on your heart, and it kills you. And if it's not going away, we're going to give you diuretics, which did nothing. But this is like you're you're at the end of your life. And I, I don't know why, really. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I thought, I at least want to die clean, so I'll go to rehab and try to not use drugs until I die. And that's what I did. And I thankfully got better.
0: How old were you?
2: 22,
1: 23.
0: So you'd had how many years of using and food using and drug using? Like 10 years?
1: Food using, most of my life. Drug using, five years. Yeah. Solid drug use.
0: So at 22, you come out clean and sober. And how are you feeling? Are you, is there the raw onion moment for you?
1: I was feeling very hesitant. I was feeling very scared and unstable in sobriety because I would stopped using drugs many times and gotten sick. I just hadn't had much time sober. I would always go back to them mm-hmm. after, you know, you stop using drugs. You don't sleep. You feel like the worst bone pain, flu kind of thing. And that lasts for a while. And then the minute I would feel better... I would start using drugs again. And so rehab got me kind of over that hump of, you know, I feel better physically than I did when I was withdrawing from drugs, but there's a sense that happiness is unattainable. There's a sense that like, I don't know what the point of life is because I never feel great and I feel crummy a lot of the times. So I was very worried that I was going to use drugs again, and I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And so it it took me a full year just about before I even thought, like, hey, I should also lose weight. It took me a long time before I even got to the point where I felt stable enough in my recovery from addiction. Yeah,
0: to look at that. To try, yeah. yeah. But have you stayed clean and sober since? Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it took me... 15 years of dieting before I kind of started to treat food in the same way that I I think about drugs and alcohol. It took me a bizarrely long time to put it together that if I want to actually have long-term success with my weight, I was going to have to structure my life kind of in the same way that I did to stay sober.
0: Yeah. If you look back and you think, when have you been? most full of fear which part of your life would that be in
1: the biggest fear if i had to be super specific and honest talking to my wife about weight loss she wasn't my wife at the time i was sober barely newly sober you know about a year Mm -hmm. and i really loved her and i had this idea that if i did nothing about my weight our relationship couldn't last because there was a lot of stuff I was avoiding doing with her. I was avoiding going to the beach, Mm -hmm. going to museums, hiking. I couldn't really hike Mm -hmm. and going to museums and standing around all day was not fun for me. And I thought two things. I thought, so if I don't handle my weight, the relationship won't last. And if I talk to her about my weight, that could blow the relationship up because she had never mentioned it. So it almost was like telling her a secret. It's a very bizarre thing to communicate about because nothing could be more objectively true than my weight.
0: She never mentioned it to you. Never mentioned it to me. So you're really scared to bring it up with her. Almost like I
1: fooled her. She couldn't see it. And if I reveal it to her... How big were you at
0: this time? 500 pounds okay, or or
1: even more than that,
0: yeah. But your brain was not seeing this as the elephant in the room. Your brain was seeing this as she's never mentioned it, so she doesn't see it. And Well,
1: I wasn't thinking she literally didn't see it, but it felt that way to me. It felt like...
0: Like she loves you without any reference to this getting in the way, so you don't want to break that sense that she's in love with you.
1: Yeah. And if I reveal this vulnerability to her, the magic is gone. Yeah. I think that moment was the most scared I've ever been. What happened? I was doing a movie in Romania and I called her. I was like, I can't see her face for this phone call. I just have to call her and tell her. And I said this thing and then I held my breath because I was listening for any kind of subtext to her reaction and she just said oh sure yeah we can totally do that do you want me to have something ready for you when you get back here but it was as though i'd said to her like let's go to the movies Mm -hmm. it was so not a big deal to her that it was like a profound relief
0: Mm. for me i mean it is for wanting to fill up the self-worth tank it's a big self-worth tank filler upper yeah. 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 Amazing woman. She's awesome. There might be many people listening who struggle with weight and struggle with a lot of things you said, and it's this is not about the size, this is about relationship with food, you know, it's about self-judgment and all these things. And you must have, since you've started your podcast, a lot of people who come on and you motivate them with your story, but you didn't have an overnight Life today is about quick fixes, and for you it's about, it's a journey you're on.
1: Well, it took me quite a while to get to that. Hmm. So I've maintained my weight now for five years. Mm -hmm. But the 15 years prior to that were just wild roller coasters. And I do think talking about weight loss, it's so tricky, because like, the mechanics of weight loss are pretty simple. If you take in less energy than your body expends, your body will lose weight. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the Mm -hmm. secret to weight loss. Mm -hmm. And I did that over and over again. And that's not to say that's easy because it's work. But I found it miraculously easy compared to what it is to change your life around to actually maintain having lost weight to that degree. Because every time I'd lose the weight, I'd gain it right back
0: fairly quickly. So one thing is the mechanic of calorific energy in expelling energy out. Then there's filling the hole. Right. So, I mean, because I think there's that practical, that's what you've got to do, but there's the emotive, I need to eat all my feeling. Well, there's the expectation that that hole gets filled by weight loss. And that
1: I think that that's the most dangerous assumption that many people make is that that hole would not exist if I weighed something else, that
0: these feelings go away at a different yeah, weight. I mean, this is the same with drugs. You think their feelings are going to, they're not going to go away, you've got to think. Right. Once I'm sober for
1: three months, I no longer will want to use drugs. Unfortunately, we know that that's not the case. Yeah. I didn't put that together with food for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I lost 200-plus pounds four times in the span of 15 years. And then Mm. in between there, I'd lose 50, 60 pounds and Mm. then gain it back, sometimes even more. Mm. Like, it was just crazy.
0: Mm -hmm. And you put that down to not understanding it is no different from addiction in terms of what am I filling the hole with or I'm having a feeling I can't deal with and then relapsing on a food pattern or what? How do you put it, Asen? For
1: myself, yes. Look, I do think there are probably people who need to lose even up to like maybe 50 pounds who just, you know, stop eating at fast food. Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to have some miraculous change in your life. Mm -hmm. I think there are people like that out Mm -hmm. there that aren't even necessarily using food in the way that I use. So I don't like to talk about these things in terms of absolutes, like everybody needs to confront the fact, you know, that, that is where I think it gets tricky. And then there are also people who have, maybe they turn on autoimmune issues with certain types of food. But for those that are like me, the weight loss does not really solve, I mean, If I think about the literal things that weight loss solves, it's like I can put an airplane seatbelt on. Weight loss solved that. My Mm -hmm. lower back hurts less. I don't have sleep apnea.
0: When I look at your feed and I see people love a before and after. They just do. All right. And you have people who are sending you images and you put them up. You're reposting them. Which for people who are on this journey and thinking, I don't know how, I'm going to do this. Looking at those is inspiring. So I think it's great. You know, I want to just go back to this thing of your four daughters. And congratulations on being your grandfather. So when you have four kids, and you know this from rehab, the chances of one of them developing an addiction...
1: Astronomically high, Astronomically, yeah. yeah.
0: And to me, like I have one child, and I have stepson, and my husband was an addict, and you know, died by suicide, and I have was a drug addict. So, I do look at both of those kids, and I think, you know, I'm I'm checking for that addictive behavior. But how do you feel around this? Because it's a worry for any parent in this situation.
1: Yes, for sure, it's something that my wife and I, we want our relationship with our kids to be as open and communicative as possible. So, and by the way, my wife drinks and she's like the type of person that'll order a glass of wine with dinner and not finish it. Mm -hmm. And I'll look at this unfinished glass of wine and not understand how Mm -hmm. that's possible, but she doesn't need to finish her drink and is perfectly fine to leave with the half a drink left. Mm That's how my wife behaves with alcohol. We're very open with our kids. They're never going to get in trouble, but we want to talk to them about anything. And the youngest is now 16. And so it's like you call us in the middle of the night and you're at a friend's house or you went to a party and there's drugs and alcohol and nobody's there sober and you need a ride home. We're going to come and pick you up and no questions asked. I think that, you know, because of me and because of some of my, the family of my wife, not her, but her siblings and parents have similar issues, we are hyper aware that that could be within the kids. Mm. And I just don't want to push them into it by putting a lot of restrictions there.
0: I'm with you on Like, I never did a curfew with my daughter, ever. And... You know, I'm a single parent. I always felt, is this wrong? Should I do this? Other parents were stricter. And I was walking down the street with her last few weeks and we, this conversation came up and she said, you know what, you always said to me, just come home if you're tired. And so I just thought to myself, am I tired? And then I came home if I was. And all my friends are thinking, my parents have said 2 a.m., so I've got to stay out till 2.30. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like yeah. I did one thing right. Um, what message would you like to give to people who are on a journey like yours?
1: You know, I think there's a lot of words that float out there, mindfulness and mindset. And those words bothered me for a long time. But I do think that perspective matters. I think that I was able to change my mind about many things. I thought the way I thought about them was correct. Even if it was only correct for me, it was correct. And I came to find out that I could take a totally different point of view and kind of attack some of these problems in ways I hadn't assumed would work. And that if you've done many diets and gained the weight back and kind of are at a point where you're like throwing your hands up, like, what's the point? there is no harm in in treating it completely differently, you know, setting a different goal and not having this idea that weight loss is going to solve some innate part of you because I don't think for the people that are similar to me, it will. I think you'll be left with that hole Mm -hmm. and it will be upsetting to have lost all that weight and still have that hole.
0: So what were the things that have helped you the most and those first steps of that true recovery of understanding how you fill the hole?
1: It was more so my relationship with food. I don't allow myself to get hungry anymore. Like Mm -hmm. hunger for me is kind of like where my bad decisions are made. Mm -hmm. And so there were lots of times where I would just do a diet that I knew, like as long as I'm always hungry, I'll be losing weight. And then when that fell apart, I was just constantly eating. Mm -hmm. And so I also... Try to eat foods that are not processed, contain one ingredient Mm -hmm. because I find that those will fill me up and keep me full longer.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm not eating to make myself feel emotionally better anymore. That's a full stop off the table thing that Mm -hmm. I just do not do. I don't eat out of boredom, like things like that, which I think if you made changes like that, you would probably see a lot of progress that you could then structure more strictly if you wanted to lose more weight. Mm -hmm. And then the filling the hole? And the filling the hole is stuff like spending time with my wife and kids and exercise fills that hole and meditating and going on walks. And there's lots of ways that people can find to fill that hole Mm.
0: that have nothing to do with dieting and weight loss. For me now... Filling that hole is even on a you know quick day, waking up doing the calm app or doing deep insight and doing David G deep thoughts. But it's literally to have, and it is when you said mindfulness meditation, it's like everyone in some stage of their recovery gets to a place where they realize I can't hold off much longer because right. when I look at those people around me who have a great recovery or who just have this attitude to life or whatever it might be, However, They're doing
1: some version of that. They are that. doing yeah. some version
0: of it, and it does boil down to some version of it. And I literally for 20 years held off on it, and then I right. had to give in. And it does. The days I practice it, it's better.
1: Yeah, find what works for you. Like, yeah. there's lots of ways to do that. But I think that it does require something. It's It's not just withholding food from yourself or withholding yeah. carbohydrates from yourself mm-hmm. or withholding meat or whatever you know, it was popular today to withhold. Yeah. There's more to it than Mm -hmm. that. And that's not going to make you feel better necessarily emotionally in the long run.
0: No, I love the picture of you on the plane with your packed lunch. I do that just because planes are places that I just eat shit. And for me, it's that what mood it puts me in and energy levels, you know. So you're kind of, (laughs) I loved your packed lunch. Planes?
1: And airports mm. create so much anxiety in me, and I think mm. it's uh, linked to when I was as large at my largest that there was a a fear of having to hurry because hurrying meant sweating and meant exhaustion, and you know even just taking your shoes off at security was like at five hundred pounds putting them on and taking them off that's like real exercise at mm-hmm. five hundred pounds. You risk throwing your back out if you're not careful. And then it's always a long walk, which is exhausting. And so I still today feel this anxiousness of like, got to be early, got to be where I need to be long before anybody else is there. Got to take my time Mm -hmm. doing all this, which is stupid now because the few times recently that I've had to rush, it's fine. I'm not a, a mess. I haven't hurt myself. Yeah. But the anxiety mixed with the boredom of sitting on a plane is like a perfect recipe for me to just eat to feel better. You know, if left to my own devices, I will have a grocery bag full of snacks that I've bought in the airport. Mm -hmm. I'll get every snack or food optioning that the airplane has, and I'll just constantly eat. Yeah. And so I found that making all of that off-limits and bringing my own food is a better structure.
0: What do you do, what do you feel, when you see somebody at an airport outside who was you?
1: This is quite similar to what i found to be true for me with drugs and alcohol, which is I didn't change until I was ready to Mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. And so I would never assume anybody is ready to change until somebody says to me, Hey, I need help. And if if you say to me, I need help, I'm more than willing to help you, Mm. but I'm not going around assuming that anybody else is ready for help just Mm -hmm. because I'm observing something Mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm very good friends with somebody, I might mention like, hey, what do you think this path leads to? Yeah. But I'm not going up to people on the street and saying like, you know, I have an idea of what you're going through and here's how I think Mm -hmm. you could change that. Mm -hmm. And it's very sad because I've talked to many parents who have kids who are kids and morbidly obese, you know, that has become more common now than Mm. certainly when I was a kid Mm. and even people who are concerned with loved ones about drugs. And I've even talked to some kids because I've had parents who are close friends of mine who have said, please, please talk to my kid. And I say like, look, I'm happy to talk to your kid, but I don't want to. Just make your kid feel shame. Like, Mm. a lot of the time, I think that's all that conversation produces. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally not interested in that. If your kid is saying to you, like, I'm not happy like this, and I don't know what to do, and let's figure something out, I'm happy to participate Mm. in that. But I just don't know where we get telling people they should change, unfortunately.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, That might be a totally pessimistic viewpoint to take, but it's just been... My experience?
0: I think it's because you've been there and you know in that situation, and I know when I was using that somebody might remark on my behavior. And maybe those things, some days, all of those things did help contribute to my rock bottom. I don't know. I think probably shame versus guilt. And we know the difference between the, you know, guilt is outward, shame is inward. But I had to get to a place of shame more than guilt. Guilt. I got clean and then I relapsed. Shame, I had injured myself, you know, that brought me to my rock bottom. So I'm just thinking, did anyone outwardly contribute to that by commenting on my behavior?
1: You know, my friends organized a couple of interventions for me. Mm -hmm. And in fact, insisted on one movie. They said, if you don't take a sober coach with you and get clean, we're going to tell the production that you're using drugs and they probably will fire you. And so I, you know, I obviously did. We got a few weeks into the movie. I said, I'm all better. I'm, you know, three weeks clean. I'm all better. Sent the guy packing and started using drugs again immediately. Mm. But I I do think there got to the point where my friends basically all said, we cannot watch you die Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and we love you and we want you to know that we love you, but we feel that we can't contribute to this by basically participating in your life. Yeah. And they they didn't, there was nothing mean-spirited about it. And I think that was a contributing factor. I, you know, I didn't go to rehab the next day. It still took me getting to death's door. Mm-hmm. But I do think I had ostracized all my friends also. And it was kind of a magical soup that, Got me clean. And then I was so happy to come back to my friends and say, look, my footing is still tentative, but I'm really trying. And I would love to see you for coffee and participate in your life again. And just know that this is what I'm going through and this is what I'm working on. And you can talk to me about it now. I would just lie to you before. And now I'm Mm -hmm. going to be very open with you about how I'm feeling and what I'm dealing with.
0: Yeah. It's such a joy to talk to you. Good to talk (laughs) to you too. It sounds
1: like we've lived similar lives.
0: Yeah, for sure. But just sharing your journey, I think, will help so many people listening. And it was really good to get to know you.
1: You too. Thank you.
0: Thank you. When my production team suggested that I should interview Ethan Soupley, I had to look him up. And as soon as I saw him, of course I knew who it was. So for me to go from the image of somebody to a conversation about what makes them who they are is the best journey. And I learned so much today. And Ethan was so eloquent in being able to describe so that we really felt it, that journey, and how well he knows himself. I love talking to a guest who's really got to know themselves through very challenging times, has faced their fears. And as a result to me, that is a fearless person because they've been through hell, they know what triggers them, and they still can feel fear and move forward.